It's good to be with you, River City. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to have you get plugged into the community here. And uh, like Aaron was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And so we'd encourage you to check those out. Uh, we'd love to invite you as well into our fall sermon series. We're working our way through the books of First and Second Thessalonians together. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's important to understand that the kind of the central theme, the the recurring theme throughout both of Paul's letters to the Christians in Thessalonica was the day of Jesus' return, Jesus' second coming. It's this day when Jesus promised that he would personally come again to earth, that he would eradicate all evil, he would set all things right, he would usher in his good kingly rule and reign once and for all. And but as we've seen throughout our study so far, Paul's not just writing these letters to answer a bunch of intriguing questions that they have about this, but rather he's trying to help Christians understand how the confidence and the hope that we have about that future day is meant to have a profoundly transformative effect on our lives today, each and every day. You see, the central theme of Paul's writing to the Thessalonians is about how faith in Jesus' return is meant to produce a sanctifying hope in us. The kind of hope for the future that doesn't just change the way that we die, but that changes the way that we live. And while we've seen Paul referencing Jesus' return a number of times throughout our study so far, and we've seen him kind of hinting at some of the implications for his return in our lives, in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus, we're going to see Paul addressing this, this, this future day head on and its implications in our lives. And, and as we study Paul's words of encouragement to the Thessalonians about this day of Jesus' return, what I want to show you is that, is that faith in what Jesus did for us the first time he came is what enables us to live with a sanctifying hope as we await his second coming. See, when you understand that Jesus' death and his resurrection weren't just past events in his life, but are in fact the proof and the pattern for future events in our own life, what's going to happen is it's not just going to change the way that you deal with death, it's going to transform the way that you live until you meet him. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into God's word and look for that sanctifying hope that faith in Jesus produces. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word. We're just grateful to get to study it. And as we think this morning about uh, just things that are really uncomfortable and hard as we think about death, as we think about life lived in anticipation of your return, Jesus, we really need you. We need you to be going before us and, uh, like we sung this morning, to be making our hearts good ground, good ground that can receive the hard truths of your word, that can take it into our hearts and begin to apply it into our lives. And so, God, I don't have any power to make any of that happen, but you do. And so uh, we just humbly ask that through the teaching of your word this morning, you might be shaping our hearts and lives and causing us to live as a people who are characterized by a sanctifying hope in you. We pray. Amen. All right, well, like I said, this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. It reads this way. Now, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still living and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. For we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him, and therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. All right, so if you remember back in chapter 3, we saw how Timothy had just returned from this, this mission that Paul had sent him on to go check on the Thessalonians. And, and the report that he brings back, Paul tells us about in chapter 3, overall it's this really encouraging, really good report. They're not just surviving in their faith, they're thriving spiritually. And, but what's clear is that Timothy brings back is that there's also a couple of really significant questions and concerns, specifically about this day of Jesus' return that the Thessalonians have and that are really troubling them. And what we see in our passage this morning is that the, there's really two questions that they have, right? And the first is about what would happen to Christians who'd already died when Jesus comes back, right? And the second is about what's going to happen to them when Jesus comes back. And what we're going to see Paul doing this morning is he's, he's offering, he offers them the gospel. He offers them the good news about the person and the work of Jesus as the encouraging answer to both of their anxious questions. And he shows them how the, the king that they are expecting to return is the same king whose substitutionary death and whose victorious resurrection are the proof that they have nothing to fear that not even death can keep him from being with the people that he came to save. And so what I want to do as we take a look at this passage this morning is we're going to just address each of these two questions that they have and see how Paul applies the gospel to them in order to encourage their hearts and to shape their lives. We see Paul addressing their first concern in, in the first section of the passage in verses 13 through 18. He writes them in verse 13 this way, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And we've already seen in the letter and in the story in Acts and how the Thessalonians, they were really facing harsh persecution, harsh opposition for their newfound allegiance to Jesus as king. And, and we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that some of the Thessalonian Christians have died for their faith. 
But whether it's a result of persecution or whether it's just natural causes, it's evident that some of the Thessalonian believers have died. And because Paul had been forced to leave them so abruptly and so prematurely, he hadn't had time to fully instruct them about what happens to Christians before Jesus' return. And, and so unaware of the hope that they actually have, what we see is that the Thessalonian believers, their, their response, their grief was characterized by this kind of confused, bewildered hopelessness. Right? It's like they were thinking, didn't Paul tell us that we'd all be with Jesus when he comes back? What about these brothers and sisters who've, who've died? What's going to happen to them? Are they just gone? Are we, are we never going to see them again? Are they, are they going to miss out on Jesus' return and on his kingdom? It's like, is, if they lost hope, what he sees that their response, Paul says, mirrored the way that the world around them responded to death. Ancient Greek uh, poet Theocritus, he captured the widespread sense of hopelessness in the Greco-Roman world by concerning death when he said this. He said, hopes are for the living, the dead have none. Hopes are for the living, the dead have no hope. Commentators, they also reference this well-known letter we have from the second century written by a woman named Irene. And she's in this letter, she's apparently sending her condolences to, to a couple whose son had died. And in it, she writes about how she's really sorry about their loss and how she weeps with them in the same way that she wept over the loss of her own uh, family member who had recently died. But while she offers them this really heartfelt sympathy, she has absolutely no hope to give them. She concludes her letter this way by saying, Against such things we can do nothing, therefore comfort one another. Farewell. Right? Essentially, her, her, her response is, Listen, yeah, death is really hard, but there's just nothing any of us can do about it. Like, you can't do anything, I can't do anything, nobody can do anything about it, so you just kind of got to move on. It's not your fault, you're, you're helpless, just, just keep pressing on. In contrast to the comfort, right, that Irene had to offer in the face of death and loss, Paul's words to the grieving Thessalonians we see this morning, they are full of hope. He tells them in verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Right, Paul's telling the Thessalonians, listen, death wasn't the end of Jesus' story, and it's not going to be the end of yours. His resurrection, it wasn't just some past event in his history. It's the pattern that all those who die trusting in him will one day follow. You see, Paul says, Jesus' death and his resurrection, they transformed the finality of death into just a nap. Not in the sense that Christians who die are actually sleeping or unconscious. 2 Corinthians 5 says that to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But, but sleeping in the sense that it's temporary. Right? Just like a nap is inevitably followed by an awakening, often rude, right? So too death will be followed by an awakening. But this one will not be rude. It's going to be a resurrection awakening. John Stott put it this way, cemeteries are mere dormitories for the dead. It's not their home. See, Paul goes on to add at the end of verse 16, far from missing out on Jesus' return, he says the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll have a place of honor and a place of priority when Jesus returns. It's really important that you see this next bit of the passage, though. 
Because this is, uh, verse 17 especially, has been uh, traditionally a, a passage that has been very misunderstood and misused, especially in our own country. And it, it's often been used as kind of the foundation to teach this idea that there's going to be some moment in the future, this inevitable moment in the future that we're just kind of out of the blue, Christians are just going to kind of disappear from the face of the earth, right? There's going to be this, they're going to be like miraculously, uh, you know, like medevaced out of out of earth to heaven, right? And then the earth is just going to plunge into chaos, right? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, right? Like, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? Or maybe you've suffered through one of the 16 books and five movies of the Left Behind series, right? All that stuff, it's based on verse 17 here, where Paul describes how when Jesus returns, all these believers living and dead are going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the, that word caught up, in the Latin translation, it's the word rap, uh, rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture from. But the problem with this kind of understanding of a rapture, that it's just like this, like this miraculous, sudden evacuation of Christians from the world, right? It's not only that that's a problem because in the grand scheme of Christendom, like that is a brand new theology, right? Like it's less than 200 years old. There are no, there are no like church fathers. There's like, there's thousands of years of church history where no one believed that at all, right? And that's, that should be your first red flag that that like, if when it comes to theology, if anything's brand new, that's your first red flag, right? But more than that, that's this kind of thinking, it ignores two very specific words that Paul uses in this passage. And I normally don't dive into the Greek with you, normally because, uh, for one, your translations are very good, and you just do not need to know it to understand the point of the passage, right? But this is one of those situations, especially in light of this kind of misunderstanding, where it's helpful. You see, I want to point out two words to you. The first is this. In verse 15, Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. He uses this, this Greek word there for the coming of the Lord. called the, It's this Greek word, parousia. And all the commentators highlight how this is a very specific word. And it became the kind of official term that was used to describe the arrival of a very high-ranking individual, like a, an emperor or a king, as they were coming to a new city or province. And the second word that's translated uh, is, is the word meet in verse 17, where Paul says that we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And in, in Greek, this is the word apontesis. And again, it's this another really specific word, and because it's this technical term that was used to describe how when a foreign dignitary would come visit a, a, a city or a victorious king would return to a city, how the people from the city would go out and they would meet this dignitary or this king outside of the city, and then they would escort that king back into the city. And together, Paul's use of these really two intentional words, they speak to this reality that when Jesus returns, Christians are not just going to be miraculously evacuated from earth, leaving everyone and everything just left behind. But instead, they're going to be reunited with one another and with Christ in the air, not in order to escape something, but in order to escort our great and glorious king into his eternal kingdom. It's really important that you see this because 
So many Christians today have this mentality that like, like we just need to hold out until Jesus gets here, right? Like we just need to hold out till he comes back and then we'll finally get to escape this messed up world. And it leads to this kind of attitude and relationship with the world that's just characterized by like an apathy and a disengagement, right? Like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, good riddance. We just got to survive a little bit longer, then we'll get out of here, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, the storyline of the Bible is not that when Jesus comes back, we all leave and go to heaven, but is that when he comes back, he brings heaven to earth. And he won't just resurrect and renew our bodies, he's going to remake our world. He's going to restore it to all that he intended and made it to be in the beginning. A remade Eden. And our job as Christians is not just to survive until that day comes and we can escape some future, but is to live in the present in view of this inevitable future. And we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes when we get to the second part of the passage. But for now, what I want to do is I just want to bring you back to verse 15. Paul, he pulls this classic like LeVar Burton reading rainbow moment, right? And he, he says like, hey, you don't have to take my word for it, right? He says in verse 15, all the things, these encouraging words he's offering the Thessalonians, they're not his. He says they're according to the Lord's words. They're Jesus's words. He says, listen, if there's anybody that you can trust about what happens after you die, it's the dude who rose from the dead, right? And Paul's like, listen, you don't have to take my word for it. Like, this is, these are Jesus's words. This is his instruction. See, at the heart of Paul's answer to the Thessalonians' first question is the, is the claim that when you understand and believe that Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a past event in his life, but is in fact the pattern for future events in the life of every Christian, what happens is it enables you to grieve with hope. It's really important that you see this. See, Paul doesn't tell the Christians, he doesn't tell them not to grieve the loss of their brothers and sisters in faith. Right? He doesn't tell them, hey, suck it up, guys. It's all going to be fine one day. You don't have to, like, don't be sad. It's fine. Like, just, like, look ahead. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. The truth is when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. And Jesus knew that. Right, just look at John 11. He weeps with Mary and Martha at the graveside of their beloved brother and his friend Lazarus. And if Jesus weeps in the face of death, then it is certainly fine for us too. So he doesn't just tell them to suck it up, but notice well, he doesn't just he doesn't just like pull a Lion King and just call out the circle of life. Right? He's not like, hey, listen, you don't need to be sad because it's just really normal and natural. And everyone dies. It's just this natural part of the circle. And so just like, hey, like, just get used to the normalcy of it. It's just fine. He doesn't tell him that because we all know that death is not normal. Like that angst inside of all of us invariably in the face of death. Like if it was just normal, you wouldn't feel that. You see, Jesus knows most of all as the very author and sustainer and creation of creation that death is not his original design. See, death is the ruinous result of sin. It's not the intended purpose. It's not the norm. It's an aberration. 
It's a problem that Jesus gave his very life to fix. And so Paul doesn't tell Christians to just suck it up or to just come to terms with the normalcy of death. Instead, he tells them, you can grieve differently in the face of death because death has been defeated. Right? It doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. And just like creation came into being at the power of his very spoken word, and just as Lazarus is called out of the grave when Jesus just mentions his name, there is a coming a day when Jesus himself will return in the clouds. And as verse 16 tells us, with a loud command, he will call the bodies of all those who have died, trusting in him to be their resurrection and life, out of their graves, to be reunited with their souls, and along with all who have trusted in him, escort him back into his eternal kingdom. And the challenge for us as Christians in the in-between, as one commentator puts it, is to bring our faith and our emotions together. To bring our faith and our emotions together so that our grieving is not just filled with sorrow, but it's filled with this aroma of hopefulness. See, but it's not just the way that we grieve over death that Paul's words are addressing here. It's the way that we live our lives until we meet Jesus ourselves. That brings us to the second area of concern the Thessalonians had. We see that in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5. And if their first concern was all about what happened to Christians who died when Jesus comes back, then their second, it's clear that their second concern is about what's going to happen to them when Jesus comes back. And, and that's totally understandable because death often has this kind of sobering, self-reflecting effect in our lives. Right? It doesn't just lead us to ask questions about where the people we've lost have gone. It leads us to ask questions about where we're going, what's going to happen to us on the other side of death, of death and how can we be sure about it? Paul's words in verse 1, they lead us to believe that the, the Thessalonians thought that the way that they could get prepared, the way that they could kind of overcome their anxiety about this future day and about meeting Jesus again, was that, was that, that if they knew the times and the dates when it was going to happen. Listen, if we know the when, then like we won't be worried. We'll be able to be prepared. But what we see in Paul's response is that is, is that the thing that actually alleviates our fears and our anxiety about our readiness for Jesus' return, it doesn't have anything to do with knowing when it's going to happen. Instead, we see it as everything to do with living in light of something that has already happened. He says in verse 9 and 10 this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Essentially what Paul is saying in this second half of the passage, right? He's saying, listen guys, listen, I already told you, nobody knows when Jesus is coming back, right? I don't know, you don't know. Jesus himself said he didn't know. That, that was the Father's prerogative to know. He says, all, all I can tell you is that it's going to be like a thief who breaks in in the night. It's going to be sudden and it's going to be unpredictable. But here's the good news. He tells them, it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. Because knowing the timing doesn't make you ready, knowing Jesus makes you ready. He says, in other words, you don't make yourself ready, Jesus makes you ready 
for his return. Verse 9, he says it this way, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we're alive or dead, we'll live with him. Did you notice in those verses how your performance is not a part of the equation? Your performance is not a part of that equation. Jesus died for you so that whether you die or whether you live, you'll be with him. You're not in the equation. See, the reason why a Christian can be full of confident, eager anticipation and hope for Jesus' return instead of this kind of anxiousness and fear and uncertainty is because our preparedness, our hope for salvation isn't based on the shifting sands of our performance or our feelings, but instead on the unshakable rock that is God's sovereign will and his completed work. He appointed you to receive salvation, not wrath. He died, past tense, finished, done, completed, over, so that no matter what, your life is safe with him. Remember a few years ago when my grandpa died, I remember getting a call from my mom, and she'd recently gotten off the phone with one of my grandpa's doctors, a man who'd gone to church his entire life, who had spent time serving alongside Mother Teresa in India, but who was absolutely unsure about where my grandpa was or where he might go. He told my mom in an uncertain tone, I hope he's in heaven. He was a good man. He did so many good things. In response, I remember my mom, she wrote him this letter. Doctor, you've been on my mind continually since our brief conversation last Friday. My father cared deeply for you and was extremely grateful for the services you provided, and I feel he would want me to share these words with you so that you might be confident about his whereabouts, but also so that you might be confident about where you will be on the day you pass from this life to the next. For one of the great blessings of God's word is that it does not leave us to wonder concerning our eternal state, but clearly marks out how we can confidently know. I'm sure many of these truths are not foreign to you. In Romans 3.23, it states that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. In Romans 6.23, it states that the, the price for our sin and rebelliousness is death, but that there's hope because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God came on a rescue mission for us. Romans 5.8 states that while we were sinners at the, right, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died taking our place so that we could be forgiven and empowered by him to live a life worthy of his sacrifice. It's not something that can be earned. Ephesians 2 says, for that by grace it's, you've been saved through faith. That it's not of your doing, it's the gift of God. And 1 John 5 tells us that all of this was written so that you might know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life. She closes the letter this way. I am certain of my father's place in heaven, not because of the sum of his good deeds that he'd done in his lifetime, but because he had accepted this free gift of salvation that God had offered him and lived his life as a witness to God's great love and mercy and redeeming power 
And my prayer is that you might accept that gift as well, so that you might know that your life and your future are secure in him. You see, that has been my prayer for you this week. That for some of you, for the very first time, that you might receive this gift of confidence and hope in your salvation. But that for all of you who have put your trust in Jesus, that the confidence and sureness of your preparedness to meet him, whether that's at your death or at his return, that it might sink in deeply to your hearts. Because what Paul teaches us in this passage is that when that reality sinks in, when your hope for receiving salvation instead of judgment and wrath when you meet Jesus is rooted not in what you do, but in what he has already done, then what happens is you're going to start to live in such a way that's characterized by facing death with hope and by living your life with a sanctifying, renewing hope each and every day, the kind of hope that leads you to live in the present like you will in the inevitable, unavoidable future. Verse 5 through 8, he says it this way, For you are children of light, you're children of the day, We don't belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See, one of the most central implications of the gospel is that your identity leads to your doing not the other way around. Right, an apple tree, it produces apples not to become an apple tree, but because it already is one. See, your identity leads to your doing, not the other way around. Paul says it this way, you don't belong to the world, you don't belong to darkness. He says, you belong to Jesus. You belong to him through faith in him. You are children of light, He died for you so that you might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted into his family. He brought you into the light. So don't live in darkness anymore. Don't live in the darkness of the world. Live in the light. He says, be who you already are. One commentator put it this way. He died our death so that we might live his life. He died our death so that we might live his life And obviously, this includes rejecting sin and embracing holiness in our lives. Like we saw last week, Paul addresses first and foremost this area of sexuality in our lives, right? And aligning our sexual ethic with God's and not the world's. But like we talked about earlier, it leads us to this attitude as well of engagement in our world. We're not just waiting for an escape hatch to heaven to open. We're sent as God's people to live as his children, image-bearing children of light, joining Jesus now in the renewing work he will bring to completion then. Shining God's light into our world through what we say and what we do, knowing that the king may return at any moment to usher in his good forever kingdom. See, and it's his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection, all that happened the first time he came, that empower us to live with a sanctifying hope as we await his return.
You see, and it's his death and his resurrection that we're remembering every week when we take communion. See, communion, it it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status with him. It doesn't change your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember his body, his blood, broken and shed so that you and I might be forgiven and freed to live with the kind of hope for his return. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and your King, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you, during our time of communion, go back and take communion and dip the bread in the juice as our joyful reminder of your great and glorious King, whose substitutionary death and victorious resurrection are the proof and the pattern for your own. But if you're here this morning, and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, you're still, you're, you don't know if, if his way is the way, or you still have doubts, and I just want to encourage you, we are so glad that you are here, and your questions are welcome, and your doubts are welcome, and the struggle and the confusion, I want you to know you are welcome here. We want to help you get to know Jesus, but I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's a chance for us to remember. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you to talk with God. You see, some of you are here this morning, and you're realizing that in the face of death, You are not like those who have no hope. You are those who have no hope. Not because you're not a decent person, but because you do not know the king who is coming. The late R.C. Sproul said that most Americans today believe in justification by death alone, which means that all you have to do to get to heaven is die. Everyone just goes automatically. And yet verse 3 stands as a sober warning. For while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, Jesus' return is imminent and unavoidable. And either you will die before you meet him, or when he returns, And in either case, you will face an inescapable destruction. And you will spend eternity paying the penalty for your mutinous rebellion against God, the king and creator of the universe, for your rejection of his good authority in your life, and for your enthroning of yourself as God. See, and when he returns, all those who have not trusted him as their savior... You're going to be like those who are found spiritually drunk and asleep. And the reason why you are here this morning is because God is inviting you to put your faith in his death for your sin and his resurrection for your life. So that when you meet him at your death or at his return, you won't be found drunk and asleep, but you'll be awake and ready, living in his empowering strength and hope not to get something from him, but in response to all he has already given you. And so so that when he comes to usher in his eternal kingdom, instead of cowering in fear at a conquering king, you will instead rise and stand in hope.
and you will join a delegation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth who will meet him in the air and who will escort him into his eternal throne room. Others of you are here. And you are in the weeds of grieving the loss of someone that you have loved. This week I had lunch with a, a friend who had just lost someone who was very close to him. See, in the gospel, Paul proclaims that I offered to my friend this week. It's meant to encourage your heart. See, death does not have the final word for those who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus does. In Revelation chapter 1, the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus appears to John in glory, and he says this to them. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive. Forever and ever, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I remember watching a clip a few years back where Tim Keller was recounting a story about a minister from the turn of the century whose, whose wife had died from cancer. And as he was driving his kids home from the funeral, he, he saw this huge truck in, in their path. And he asked his kids, do you see that truck? Yes, they responded. Do you see the shadow of that truck? Yeah, we do. He asked them, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? His youngest responded, shadow. He said to them, because Jesus was hit by the truck of death, your mother only had to go through the shadow of it. You see, death used to be an executioner, he told them. But because of the gospel, it's just a gardener. See, the hope of the gospel is that if God did not abandon Jesus in the grave, he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to abandon all those who have put their trust in him, who put their hope in him. He paid the penalty, and he will rise again. I'll just add this, even though it's not in our passage. For those of you who are here this morning and you are in the weeds of grief, I just want to encourage you as well with, with John chapter 11. You see, this is passage where Jesus, he weeps with his friends, Mary and Martha, over the death of their brother. And even though he knows in just a moment he's about to raise their brother from the dead, he weeps with them because he loves them. I just want to encourage you this morning. The Bible doesn't just offer you future hope in the midst of your grief. It offers you a father in heaven who loves you in the middle of your grief, who weeps with you, who hurts with you, and who died himself and rose again so that death would not get the final word in their life or in yours. So be encouraged. Death is defeated. And Jesus is a king who loves you. Lastly, some of you are here and you have the hope of salvation, but the truth is, you are not living like you do. 
You either are full of uncertainty and anxiousness about your standing with God or about the future and your destiny at his death or at at his return because you're forgetting that your preparedness to meet him is not based on your performance but on his finished work. And I want to encourage you this morning, the gospel is the proclamation that for all those who have put their trust in Jesus, I said this the very first week, judgment day got moved from the future to the past. See, your judgment day, it happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And so when Jesus comes back, you don't have anything to fear. See, but others of you are here and you're living like you don't have that kind of hope because you've forgotten this new identity that you've been given through faith in Jesus' death. That even though you are a child of light, you're living like just a napping drunkard in darkness You see, in the reality that Paul teaches is that we're not supposed to live like drunkards, ignorant of what's really at stake, or just simply trying to escape the pain of our current reality. We're supposed to be living as citizens of Jesus' kingdom of light, who are awake and engaged, living in preparation for our great king's return, running from sin and running towards him And the reality is, is that you will never be able to call others to a sanctifying hope in Jesus if you aren't living with one yourself. Verse 8, Paul tells us in order to live this kind of sober and alert anticipation, we need God's armor. He says, putting on the faith and love as a breastplate, the hope of salvation as a helmet. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, he says it this way, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. And so as Paul tells the Thessalonians, let us encourage one another with these words. Let us comfort one another. Let us build each other up. Let us exhort one another with these words. Our king is coming. His return is unpredictable and inescapable, but he's given us all we need to be ready. So let us live with a sanctifying hope in eager anticipation of that future day because his past death and resurrection is the pattern and the proof for our future hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we are so grateful for the hope of the gospel this morning. We are so grateful, Jesus, that although we might not not know the timing of your return or the day of our own death, Jesus, you give us all we need to be prepared to meet you. And so might we, Jesus, be a people whose faith in your past death and resurrection fuel our sanctifying hope for your return. Might the confidence that we wait for your return be filled with life and joy. Might we be characterized by an alertness and a soberness and engagement in our world. Might we participate, Jesus, in the renewing work that you will bring to completion on that day knowing that it's not our performance that readies us to meet you, but it's your finished work and your sovereign will. We pray, amen.